If you're new with us this morning, a word or two to orient us. We have been preaching through the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew 5 through 7, this one long sermon that Jesus gives, which in many ways is a sort of explanation and vision statement for the kind of kingdom that he's coming to usher in. And so the first, the first part of chapter 5, the first couple weeks, we worked through the Beatitudes, through this vision for us as people, dependent on grace and relying on God, and then through this calling of us together as a people to be salt and light. And now in many ways we're coming to the meat of the sermon. With that as the foundation, Jesus starts to work through issues related to how he wants and is calling us as Christians to live. And there's some challenging things that get said over the next few um, chapters, and I want to acknowledge that up front, but I also want to acknowledge that our calling as Christians, if we want to follow Jesus, is to wrestle with and seek ultimately to obey as we understand those challenging things, and so I'd invite us all to walk into that together. But before we dig into this passage, would you pray with me? Our God and Father, I pray that you might be near to us as we come to your word. I know, Lord, that as it is the word that you have spoken to us as your children, you are already near, and I pray that you might be working in our hearts. Be with all of us, sinners, that we might hear your word and repent. Be with me, a sinner, as I preach it. Pray all of these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So this might shock some of you, and I apologize, but I have to confess that as a kid and as a teenager, I was not always perfectly behaved. I, I got into some trouble. And I'm not going to tell you what kind of trouble, because I don't want to give our younger members any ideas. But um, like, like most of you, at least those of you who weren't perfectly behaved, there were, I feel like there were a couple of these kind of basic conversations that my parents would have with me when I got in trouble, that it would be one of a couple of options that they would choose from. And one of them is that they would sit me down and they would say, Eric, what did you do? And I would say, well, I did that thing that I'm not going to talk about here. And, um, and then they would say, why did you do that? And I would say, well, I mean, everyone was doing that, right? And then they would say, well, that might be, but in our family, we don't do that kind of thing. In our family, we don't do that kind of thing. And I know that that response can be trite, and it might not be the best comeback, But there is some truth to that, right? Taken in the best light, what my parents were trying to say is that I belonged to this group of people, and that group of people was meant to give me a certain identity, an identity that should affect how I behaved. And so when I got into trouble, I wasn't living out that identity that I had as a part of this family. And in some ways, I think that is how Jesus is approaching the Sermon on the Mount. He's speaking to this crowd who is, for the most part, I mean, they're Israelite. They're a part of God's people. They have that identity. And Jesus' goal is to give them a sense of how that identity is supposed to affect the way they behaved. He's giving them what we've called a constitution for a new creation. An idea of what life is supposed to look like within the new creation that Jesus is coming to usher in. Because of our membership in that people, Jesus is calling us to live a certain way. He's giving us an identity that should affect how we behave. And so as we read this sermon, our calling is to wrestle with what our identity is supposed to mean. How would we sum up that identity? Well, for Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, the way he sums it up is as righteousness. Righteousness in Scripture means obedience to God, seeking to live 
um, the way that he has called us to live. And that, that the idea, that righteousness, is the way Jesus summarizes all the things that go into his vision for what our identity is supposed to mean. But the thing is, lots of different people have different ideas about what that righteousness is supposed to look like, right? So Jesus, one of the groups he keeps addressing in this sermon is the Pharisees. And they, for example, have a very different idea about righteousness than Jesus. And so in this text, what Jesus tries to do is start to lay out how he wants us, as his people, to view righteousness. So how does he view it? Well, I think as we work through this text, that there are four different things that Jesus wants us to see. Four truths about righteousness, but I'm not going to spoil them up front. We'll get to them each in turn as we start to walk through the passage. All right. So first, Jesus right up front tells us, that righteousness is essential, that it is essential. He makes that pretty clear in verse 17, right at the start. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. One of the things that Jesus does in his ministry from the very beginning is challenge these sorts of Pharisees and teachers of the law and their views on the law and obedience to it. He keeps calling them out and claiming that they've got it wrong, but he knows that that could lead to the wrong idea. Right? If all we heard is him critiquing their approach to the law, we could conclude that maybe the law isn't supposed to mean anything for us. But for Jesus, it absolutely does. He's not come to abolish the law, he says. He's confronting the Pharisees not to give us permission to be less righteous than them. But in fact, and this is a challenging saying, he says to be more righteous. If you look at verse 20, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. That's a hard saying, and it might leave you feeling discouraged up front, and there's more to say about it. But hold on to that for a minute, because while Jesus is not saying that we have to be perfect for God to love us or something like that, we don't want to lose the weight of it either. For Jesus, righteousness is essential. How essential? At the end of our passage, Jesus uses these shocking pictures to try to express it. So in verse 29, he says that if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. Or in verse 30, if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. Now those aren't literal commandments, right, for amputation. We know that because the disciples sin over and over in the Gospels, and there is no point where Jesus says in light of these words, here's a bone saw, get to it, in response to their sin. But while that isn't a literal command, it is meant to express how seriously we need to take the struggle for righteousness. That we can't make peace with sin, instead that we need to seek to kill it. To cut it off in a way as serious and maybe as painful as the pictures that he uses. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the famous German pastor and theologian, saw one of the great failings of the church in Germany in his day as being what he called cheap grace. Christianity had compromised with the world. It was unwilling to challenge it. God loves and forgives all, the church said, in such a way that meant God didn't challenge anything about anyone's lives. Bonhoeffer defines cheap grace in this way in his book, The Cost of Discipleship. Cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. 
Bonhoeffer wrote those words in the years leading up to World War II, and he saw this cheap grace as deadly not just because of the fact that it displeased God, but because it actually hurt Christians' ability to be Christians to the world around them. Part of the reason that the church didn't stand up to the darkness of Nazism that was rising in his day, Bonhoeffer believed, was that they had embraced a Christianity that didn't cost them anything to begin with, and so suddenly, when forced to confront a situation where their faith would cost them something if they were faithful to it, they chose to keep silent and not challenge the world. They weren't prepared for the cost. And I think we can easily buy into a form of cheap grace, too. We are all called to fight for righteousness in our lives. It is meant to be the defining character of Christians, to seek to obey God's call to love the Lord and love the world, even though it costs us. And the grace of the gospel is powerful and free, and we'll get to it in a minute, but it is never cheap. Whatever we do with grace, and we need to do stuff with it, it is not the grace of the Christian gospel if it discourages us from obedience. If we are using God's love as an excuse to go on sinning, it's not the God of the Bible whose love we're talking about. Before anything else, Jesus wants us to recognize that righteousness is something that all Christians are called to. It's not a thing that you add to the Christian life. It is what is meant to live it. It's easy to say we're Christians, right? But it's a completely different thing to actually live like it. And that will cost you. While the image of cutting off your hand or gouging out your eye, like we said, aren't literal... They are meant in some ways to resonate with our experience of the Christian life, that we're and to engage in a struggle with sin and a struggle for righteousness with that kind of seriousness. So Jesus first wants us to recognize that righteousness is essential, that he hasn't come to abolish the law. But the Pharisees up to now, right, they would agree with that point that Jesus makes. That's been their case all along. No, you've got to obey the law, right? And so then what Jesus starts to do is critique their understanding of what righteousness is. First, by arguing that the righteousness that God desires is internal. Righteousness is internal. If you look at verse 21, Jesus tells the crowd that you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. And just to be clear, that's the law of Moses, right? That's the, you know, the Torah that Jesus is quoting. And the law that Jesus has just said he hasn't come to abolish, okay? But then he says in verse 22, I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. What is Jesus getting at there, all right? He's not saying that the law of Moses about murder is wrong, okay? Some people read this text and assume that that's what Jesus is saying, but it's not that way, both because he just said that that's not what he's doing and because Jesus nowhere promotes murder as being an okay thing. Rather, what Jesus is saying is that that external regulation of the law about murder isn't enough, that we shouldn't murder people, no, but we shouldn't murder them because they are valuable creatures created in God's image with dignity. And that means that we should treat them in that way. And even more that we need to think about them that way. The reason we don't kill them is also the reason that we shouldn't harbor hatred or malice towards them in our hearts. If we think we're righteous just because we aren't murderers, Jesus is saying, but our hearts are full of anger and hatred, we've missed the point. 
The same thing is going on in verses 23 and 24 when Jesus talks about leaving your sacrifice in the altar. In the Old Testament, God provided sacrifices as a symbol of his grace, and you were supposed to offer them for your sins. But if your heart is still full of hate and discord with a brother, Jesus says, the outward observation of sacrifice isn't enough. You can kill all the bulls and goats you want, but it doesn't count as obedience to the law if there's still murder in your hearts. And Jesus says the same thing about adultery in verse 27. If you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, which again is true, but then Jesus goes on in verse 28, I tell you that anyone looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. It isn't righteousness just to stay out of your neighbor's bed, Jesus says, if you're doing it in your head. And this is really where Jesus parts ways with the Pharisees. They saw obedience as something purely external and so doable. If righteousness equals not killing people or sleeping with other people's wives, that's a standard that I'm doing okay on. But Jesus insists that that matter is actually one of the heart. And the reason is that what exists in our hearts is a much truer picture of who we really are than just what we do on the outside. I mean, most people don't commit murder, right? Why is that? I mean, part of it is that we have consciences and that some amount of morality, but part of it has to do with external pressure too, right? If I kill somebody, I'm going to go to jail, or at least people are going to look at me askance for the rest of my life. Remember a story on the radio show This American Life by John Hodgman, and he poses a bunch of people a very serious question. He says, if you could have one superpower, flight or invisibility, what would it be? And that starts off as a kind of amusing question, right? You can think about it for a minute. But the more that he talks to people, the more you realize that there's something deeply profound going on behind that question. What stuck with me is this one woman's comment near the end of this story. Here's what she said. She said, I think a lot of people would choose flight, and I think they're lying to you. I think they're saying that because they want to sound all mythic and heroic, because the better angels of our nature would tell us that the thing we should strive for is flight, and that that's noble and stuff. But I think that if people were being honest with you, they would tell you the truth, which is that they all want to be invisible so that they can indulge their darkest desires and get away with it. And that resonates with me. John Hodgman sums up the choice this way. It's deciding between the person you hope to be or the person that you fear you actually are. And that's why Jesus insists that righteousness has to be internal. In our hearts, we are all ultimately invisible. We can do what we please, and there are no police officers, and there are no social consequences. And that truth leaves me undone. Somewhere years ago as a kid, I remember being asked this question. What if over your head there was a television screen? And on that screen was shown every thought and fantasy and dark imagining that flitted through your brain. How would you feel about that? And the answer is that if that was really something I had to do, I would be destroyed. I would lock myself in a room or end it all. Because I know that as much as I uphold this outward standard of the law, inside I am a mess. There are all kinds of dark corners in my heart. Anger and lust and pride and jealousy. I have murdered people in my heart. All of us have. That, though, is the battlefield where righteousness is fought for because that's the only battlefield where this question is asked. Where, what, who will you be 
when no one else sees you, right? When only God can judge, what are you going to do then? Will you seek righteousness or will you go your own way? John Wooden, the famous basketball player, said that the true test of a man's character is what he does when no one is looking. Jesus would modify it a little bit, but the sentiment is the same. The true test of a man's righteousness is what he thinks where no one can see. So Jesus parts ways with the Pharisees by insisting that righteousness is internal. But there's another element as well. Jesus sees righteousness as being directional. Righteousness is directional. What does that mean? We can often think of obedience as if there was this line and that our job is to stay on the okay side of it. That as long as we don't cross the line, we can be pretty close to it, but we're righteous. Cross it and you aren't. But I don't think that's how Jesus views it. If you look at verse 22, Jesus states that anyone who says raka is answerable to the court. Raka is an Aramaic curse. It essentially means you're utterly worthless. But Jesus says that that isn't enough. That just saying to a brother or sister, you fool, will put you in danger of hell itself. Which means that for Jesus, how we talk about people isn't just about not saying particularly nasty things about them. That any insult we give, anything we say that tears someone down rather than building them up, is sin. So righteousness doesn't just mean that we don't cuss people out. Right? I've heard some good Christian folk give tongue lashings that studiously avoid any profanity but leave people utterly destroyed. Righteousness instead means going the opposite direction, taming our tongues and using our speech to build up rather than tear down. I also think this is what lies behind verse 25. Jesus calls us to settle disputes quickly and personally rather than going to court. I think the root reason, the one standing behind Jesus' warnings that the case might go badly for you, is that those sorts of legal battles aren't the goal. Our aim shouldn't be to win in court. Our aim should be to seek peace before we ever get there. We should be headed in the direction of forgiveness and reconciliation. The same is true in the warnings against anger and lust in verses 22 and 28. Plenty of people in our world mock those ideas. What's wrong with private fantasies as long as it doesn't hurt anyone? The answer, though, is that the goal of righteousness is not just to avoid something like adultery or murder, but to pursue purity and grant dignity. The root problem with sexual sin in Scripture is always that it is about using and abusing people. It reduces them to objects to fulfill our own desires. That's what happens with lust. It's why Jesus opposes it. The evil of pornography in our world that's affected so many of us. It's, it's evil not because it breaks some arbitrary rule. It is evil because it demeans women. It destroys them and transforms them from human beings worthy of dignity and respect to tools to satisfy other people's appetites. The warning against anger is the same thing. It's a call to respect people. It's meant to call us to honor people as people, to stop viewing them as objects that exist to serve us and instead to view them as creatures that we are called to serve. We're being called to a different direction of life, a direction of love and service rather than of selfishness. Kids love to test boundaries. Have you ever noticed that? One of the ways they learn in the world is by pressing against its limits, and that's true physically. They're always climbing things they shouldn't climb and jumping off things that are too high to jump off of, but they also do it morally. 
even before they can talk, there comes this moment when they're doing something that they know they shouldn't, and you tell them no, and they give you this sly little look that says, but what if I do? And then they're taking the marker and drawing all over the wall, right? One of the things that you quickly realize as a parent is that a part of that is that your kids are naturally these little lawyers. They all are, they're all about... T- pushing the line, finding the loopholes. Sure, I can't have ice cream before supper, but what about cake, they ask you. I didn't color on the wall with the marker this time. It was a crayon. (laughs) But here's the thing. We are all in pursuing righteousness like those children. We can do exactly the same thing. We take a bare minimum approach to Christianity. What are the minimum number of boxes I need to check to be righteous? How often can I sleep in instead of coming to church? How little can I give? How selfish can I be with my spouse and still be all right? But the goal of Christianity is righteousness. And righteousness is not for lawyers. It doesn't ask how far I can go towards sin, but how far I can run from it. It doesn't ask how little I can do and not hate someone, but how much I can do to love them. The ultimate standard for us is God. His righteousness is our goal. The problem Jesus is warning against is what they talk about happening to people in prison, right? Sure, I might be a murderer, but at least I didn't mess with kids, the guy says. But Jesus wants us not to compare ourselves to the worst people around us or even the best people around us, but to God himself. Righteousness means seeking to be more like God. So righteousness is essential, and it is internal, and it is directional. And all of that is true. Are you feeling discouraged yet? Because I am. If I am called to be righteous, and righteousness includes my thoughts and the direction of my life, I am not very righteous. Not at all. Which is why there's one final encouraging reality about righteousness that I think Jesus wants us to see, and that is that righteousness is unattainable. It's unattainable. One of the mistakes we can make when we read the Bible is to pretend like it is a book of timeless sayings without context or place. People do this with the Sermon on the Mount. We put half of one verse on a coffee mug and then figure that however that half a verse strikes you, that's what God means. But the Bible doesn't actually work this way. The things it says are written to specific people in specific places. The things Jesus is saying are part of a specific moment, spoken to a specific crowd. And part of remembering that is asking not just what a text like this says, but what it is trying to do. What Jesus is trying to say by saying it. My daughter asked me to do ridiculous things. Like, let's go to the moon, Daddy. Or let's get a pet dinosaur. And sometimes when I'm feeling ornery, I'll reply with something like, sure, we can do that, but first you have to swim across the ocean. Or yes, we'll go to the moon after you do a million cartwheels, right? And my daughter, even my, my, you know, my five-year-old, is old enough to understand that what I'm saying in that moment is not, yes, we're going to go to the moon, right? She doesn't book a ticket to the beach to go start swimming. She understands that what I'm saying is it's impossible. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing here. He's confronting the Pharisees. And the thing about the Pharisees is that they think they've got this righteousness thing figured out. For them, righteousness is a list of external rules. They avoid murdering people and committing adultery. They tithe and they don't work on Saturday. And they say, I have arrived. I've got this thing figured out. Look at me and how righteous I am. 
One of Jesus' main aims in the Sermon on the Mount is proving to his hearers that such an external rules-based approach to righteousness is wrong. It doesn't get you there. If you are full of anger and lust and slander, it doesn't matter whether you've actually killed anyone. You still don't get to say you're holy. So there's a real sense in which Jesus is setting an impossible standard with these words. He knows perfectly well that if a flash of anger or a lustful thought is enough to make us unrighteous, that we are all condemned. Which isn't permission to ignore what he's saying. Jesus is seriousness that we are to seek after righteousness, to pursue it with all our hearts, to make it the direction of our lives, and that righteousness that we are called to seek after does look like this. But what Jesus is not saying is that we have to attain it before God loves us or welcomes us in. Like we said a few weeks ago, all of this presupposes the Beatitudes, right? And when you wrestle with this text, it will leave you feeling spiritually poor, which is the point Because as Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. We mentioned earlier Bonhoeffer's idea of cheap grace. And we need to be wary of cheap grace. But the opposite of cheap grace is not flawless obedience. It is not legalistic perfection. Because that's not a place that you're ever going to reach. What Christianity offers us is transforming grace. The opposite of cheap grace is transforming grace. The good news of the gospel is that we are failures. We are not righteous. We are failures, but God has covered this failure with the perfect obedience of Jesus Christ. Transforming grace frees us from despair when we recognize how far short we fall. It frees us from despair because it promises that no matter how badly we screw it up, God is still for us. He still delights in us. He calls us his beloved children, his bride, and he pours himself out on our behalf. But transforming grace also frees us to pursue this kind of true righteousness. If we don't have the gospel as our standard, our only hope is to lower the bar. If righteousness is a plateau that we have to reach before God God loves us, we've got to set it at the level we're already standing, right? Or maybe just one rung higher. That's why legalistic Christianity almost always defines obedience differently than the Bible. It makes up rules about what movies you can go to and what people you can befriend. It focuses on these external measurable things. What it never tells you is that the law is summed up in this. Loving the Lord with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength all the time and loving every neighbor just as much as you love yourself. Because let's be honest, I can kind of check the boxes on those external things, but I am never there. What the gospel allows us to do is acknowledge how far short we fall of righteousness and to experience God's grace and forgiveness and then standing on that ground to press onward toward growth and godliness. That's the rhythm of the Christian life, to fall and to be forgiven and to press onward once again. Or as we close, let me put it another way. I said at the beginning that there were times as a kid that I was told some version of this. In our family, we behave a certain way. And here's the thing about those words. They can actually mean two very different things. For some of us, those are words of condemnation, conditionality, rejection. 
They come as a threat. We behave a certain way in this family. And if you don't, you better be prepared to handle life on your own. If that is the way that those words were said to you, then I can only say that I'm sorry. Because a conditional approach to righteousness is always destructive. It makes obedience come before belonging. If we don't live up to our family standards, they throw you out in the street. But that wasn't how those words were said to me. Instead, they were meant to be words of affirmation. What they were trying to say is, you are a part of this family. You are our son. We love you because of this. Please try to live as if those things are true. And this is how the gospel meets us in our call to righteousness. In the gospel, belonging comes before obedience. Belonging comes before obedience. We are, if we trust in Jesus, a part of God's family. That he loves us and delights in us. None of our failures and falterings can endanger that. Our Father is faithful even when we are faithless, the Apostle Paul says. But what we have in the Sermon on the Mount is a plea to live like we belong to that family that we have. Grace is meant to call us to something greater than we are. To call us not just to the bare minimum, but to live the kind of righteous lives that God called us to have from the beginning. Being in God's family is meant to transform us. Righteousness is an essential part of our calling, not an additional add-on. And it is meant to transform us fully, not just the outward actions, but our internal selves. And it is meant to transform us, not just keep us from being particularly bad, but change us more and more into the image of our Father. But most of all, our call to righteousness is meant to stand as a signpost of our Father's grace. We will fail in pursuit of it. And in that moment, God meets us not with rejection, but with forgiveness and love, with tender affection. So let's chase after righteousness this week. Let's fight for it and lean into the upward call of Jesus Christ. And when we fail, let's rejoice in the cross that stands as our hope. And like our Savior who died on it, let us not stay fallen, but rise again. Would you all pray with me? Father God, I stand both challenged and convicted by your words and your call. I pray that you would help me, that you would help each of us to press on towards the lives of your family, the lives of the kingdom of heaven, that we might obey and serve you in them. Father, I pray that you might most of all speak to us the grace and love of Jesus Christ, and that as we encounter his love and his work on our behalf, that we might be changed more and more into his image and yours. We pray all these things in his name. Amen. Before we close today, we're going to do something a little bit irregular. Um, I'd ask the Smiths to come on up, and if the members of the session want to come on up as well. Many of you know Michael and Jen. Uh, they, Michael has served as our youth director for the last 10 years. He was an intern here before that. He has long been a part of our family. And although a lot of you got to say goodbye to them last night, as we had a going-away kind of party. You know, many of you know Michael is going to grad school to pursue a master's degree, and um, I just felt like there were two things that kind of needed to be said in sending you off rightly. 
Uh, three things, maybe. First of all, Michael isn't the youth director anymore, and while he loves you all, please give, <laughs> allow him a little freedom to start pursuing things. But the other two, more seriously, are one, well done. I know, well, I've only been here a few months in watching you serve and in talking to the many, many people whose lives that you have touched, that Jen has touched too as your, um, as your servant, and that you both have as members and you have as an employee here at the church, that you have served Jesus faithfully, not perfectly, not sinlessly, and I know you're aware of those things, but faithfully, which in the end is the thing that truly matters, and that just know that so many people here love and appreciate you, and that your father is pleased by your service here at Kish. And then secondly, go and serve Christ in your callings as you work in whatever city you end up serving in, as you try to um, just help those places. I know your heart for those things too, There is no line that delineates sort of a few sacred callings from a bunch of other secular ones. But Jesus calls all of us, wherever we go, to be agents of his new creation, servants of his kingdom, to go out with his love and the gospel. And you, as you are stepping into this next phase of life, are still going out with those things. So for both of you, go out um, and just serve Jesus wherever he calls you in those ways. I, a couple of elders are going to pray for you guys now as we lay hands on you guys, and then we'll have you go out. Let's pray. that have now gone on uh, to bless the Lord and to serve.